You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the economic story of my lifetime has certainly been the economic rise of China. And perhaps there's no better symbol of that this week than Hollywood star John Cena apologizing in Mandarin, which he's been learning over the last few years about calling, apologizing for calling Taiwan a country. Joining us now is Isabella Weber, assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, also the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Professor Weber, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. That's wonderful. Good. I'm glad to hear. Um, you start out your, your book by describing what led you to write it. Share that story with us. Sure. So I was working in Berlin at a foundation um, that uh, facilitated exchange with China. And um, there were occasions where there were cadres from East Germany, um, I mean, former cadres, of course, joining these meetings. Um, So the question of why were these people who used to be officials in East Germany um, now just some ordinary people, whereas the Chinese delegations, of course, still represented um, the Chinese socialist state um, raised the question how history could have played out so differently in the two countries. And 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 you share your story also of, of actually studying in China. So take us take us there. Yeah. So as an undergraduate, I had studied in China, um, and as a student of economics, I of course attended uh, classes in, on economics, and I was struck by the fact that. Um, at the university in Beijing, we would study from the same American textbooks that I knew from my time in Berlin. So mm. that kind of raised the puzzle of how could economic policy be so different in China and yet um, economics education be so similar between the United States, Germany and, and China. So this kind of led me to um, question what the economics of economic reform might have been, given that China's path is so distinct um, from other countries where the economics professions seem to be so deeply integrated into the global mainstream. Well, your book is called How China Escaped Shock Therapy. What, what is shock therapy in this context? So shock therapy was the idea that one could implement a big um, package policy um, that would entail rapid price liberalization in the first instance, and then followed up by privatization and um, trade liberalization, and all of this added with um, macroeconomic austerity. And through this package um, of policies, one would be creating a textbook-like market economy, more or less um, overnight. However, it turned out that um, countries like, for example, Russia, that implemented shock therapy actually did not um, create instant miracles, but rather um, entered recessions that were, in the case of Russia, um, deeper and more prolonged than the um, Great Recession in the United States of the 1930s. So um, escaping shock therapy, not implementing shock therapy, was a rather crucial um, precondition for China's economic rise and China's um, massive and fast uh, growth trajectory that is often being described as unprecedented in, in, in history in terms of pace and scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it happened so quickly and affected so many people. It, it really does seem unprecedented. Um, 
Professor Weber, let's fast forward to where we are right now, uh, especially between the U.S. and China, where we are still in the midst of a trade war and you have American companies eager to do business in China while at the same time making sure that they don't offend uh, the China Chinese Communist Party. Um, how would you characterize where, where the U.S. is with China right now? Well, I think um, it's kind of at a moment of uh, everybody is waiting and see waiting to see what is going to happen, right? Um, we are kind of in, an, in, an, in, an, in, in a difficult moment in that sense. More broadly speaking, I think um, that basically since the late 1980s, um, China had embarked on a journey of export-led growth um, that entailed um, using its comparative advantage in cheap labor and um, enticing international companies to invest in China um, and produce uh, stuff in China. So we had entered a model of headquartered in the United States and Europe and manufactured in China, just as the iPhone would um, say on right. the back of it until fairly recently, designed in California, assembled in, right. in China, right? But China's ambition is, of course, we to not... Um, Simply, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just we're, we're going to come right back. We'll pick up right where we left off. It's Isabella Weber, assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts. Professor Weber, before we uh, we were going to break, we were talking about where we were in 2021, the trade tensions between the U.S. and China, while at the same time, American companies eager to do business in China. You were talking about the example of, of Apple and how it says designed in California and so often on many of its products made in China. Yeah, so basically over the last decade, this rather symbiotic relationship between the American and the Chinese um, economy had emerged, were designed in, in, in California and assembled in China, really, in some sense, became the core of the word economy. But as China um, had, I think, never really the ambition of um, staying only the assembler of products, but always had the ambition to also create its own companies, to create its own national champions, as um, China's own industrial upgrading um, is, is progressing and China is becoming gradually um, competitive in, in more and more technology-intensive um, sectors, these tensions um, seem to be mounting. And these tensions seem to be mounting in ways that um, are not simply only dependent on who exactly is currently in the White House. But do you see that there's been, or do you agree that there's been a, a shift with the way that the, the U.S. And, and China, I mean, it's, it's, it's so clear that there has been during the Trump administration with the tariffs. And then also, I mean, even I'm, I'm, I'm looking at one of the fact sheets uh, from uh, the Biden administration right now about the American jobs plan. In the first paragraph, the president says that the American jobs plan is an investment in America that will create millions of jobs uh, and allow and position the United States to outcompete China. That's in a policy statement from the president. Yeah, there certainly has been a shift, um, and I personally think that for an American jobs plan, it is not really necessary to see this primarily in competition with China, since if we think about the related issue of inflation, which seems to be the biggest um, threat to the big, uh, the, the large-scale infrastructure investment um, programs that are be currently being um, discussed, then maintaining good trade relations with China could actually be something that could um, fundamentally help um, ease inflationary pressure and thereby, in fact, help the United States to pull off this rather important um, large-scale investment um, project, um, whereas trying to decouple from China while also issuing um, investment programs that are 
in scale only comparable with uh, wartime experiences seems to be a much more risky um, strategy. Last week in uh, the in the um, in Bloomberg Business Week, there was an article by Ian Marlowe and James Patton, and it's called "China is Winning the Race to Vaccinate the World." For now, it says that Beijing's COVID nineteen shots are a new soft power lever in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how China has has been over the last few years? Go, uh, working with, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative to move outside of China and establish itself as a global player in ways that I think many Americans are not familiar with. Yeah, um, I mean, if we look at the reform trajectory of China that I'm researching in my book, then we really can see that the Chinese state has acted domestically as a market creator and market participant. So there's a direct acknowledgement of basically the principles of Adam Smith, where the extent of the market limits the degree of division of labor and thereby limits um, the, 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 the degree of um, possibility for economic progress. Now, in many ways, the Bad and Road Initiative is taking this same logic of the state creating market relationships to the next level and trying to integrate um, the Eurasian economy in ways that we haven't really seen um, seen happening. So this is certainly um, in, incredibly important and will really um, shift the economic structures of the region. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I remember I was on a, I was, I was visiting a, a country in Africa in 2006, uh, and I went back to the same country in, in 2014. And um, uh, People from uh, the Chinese government had essentially built roads and uh, established buildings, uh, and they were places. It was it was totally remarkable what they'd done in, in in just in just eight years since I had been there before. I'm wondering what the long term implications of that are. I mean, I mean, what does this end up looking like five, ten years down the road? Well, I think if anyone knew how the world was going to look like in five, <laughs> ten years down the road. <laughs> They would probably be some sort of a magician. I feel like yeah. we are currently really in a moment of what economists like to call radical uncertainty. But this radical uncertainty is so radical that it's really on all levels, from the pandemic to climate change to the reorganization of um, global economic relations. So um, I think that's very hard to, to, to predict. However, um, I do think that, it's, that, that the investments in, in, in Africa, often with um, the involvement of state-owned enterprises, um, illustrate something more broadly about the Chinese development model, and that is um, that China has transitioned from a more or less planned economy to a market economy. But however, in this market economy, the state plays a much more active role um, than it does, uh, for example, um, in the United States. And that role is not only more active, but it is one that is really a state that is participating in markets. So these state-owned enterprises are state-owned enterprises, but they still operate as market players. So the boundaries between state and market um, become rather unclear. And I wonder how that, that shifts, that, that plays out in the United States. And because I opened our interview talking about Hollywood star John Cena apologizing in Mandarin for recognizing Taiwan as a country. And he got widespread pushback from Democrats and Republicans for doing that. Do you see political risk where where there is a shift to such an extreme that American businesses, it's hard to even imagine, but will somehow be less eager to do business in China as a result? I mean, ironically, we see the tensions mounting at a moment where at the same time, um, we have a major move towards industrial policy and towards 
policies that involve a state that is actively participating in the economy in the United States. So we see the tensions with China mounting often um, related to um, a, a certain analysis of, of, of the Chinese state and its relationship with the economy, while at the same time um, we see a process in the United States underway that actually makes, has the potential to bring the two systems closer together rather than um, pushing them further apart. So we, we, we are in a, some, some sort of a contradictory moment in that sense. Isabella M. Weber, she's the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the Market Reform Debate. She's also assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much for taking the time, Professor Weber. Well, that's going to do it for Bloomberg Business Week on this Thursday, the second to last trading day of the month. Have a great day, everybody. We will see you back here tomorrow, same time, same place. This is Bloomberg, and this is Bloomberg Business Week.